0: from IMLS can speak about the implementation grant round that's coming up. So today we're going to hear from Margot Carlock, Executive Director of the Virginia Association of Museums, Lorraine Daly-Jones, Museum Collection Manager at the Arizona Historical Society, and Melinda Horton, Executive Director of the Florida Association of Museums. Um, Their bios are in your uh, handouts, so I encourage you to look at those, and um, I'm going to let you. Uh, just get right into with our speakers. I think this is a really important topic because we've all done a lot of work as we've talked about in uh, getting back in touch with our constituents, making sure we have good lists of our constituents, doing surveys, getting data, but we need to push it one more step further and make sure that we're reaching decision makers and the public to let them know about all the good work that's going on in our states and how they can support preservation. So let me turn it over first to Margo. Thanks.
1: Uh, Well, welcome everyone. Um, I am going to be addressing the public component of the advocacy piece. And what we decided to do uh, to drive public awareness is something called our Virginia Top 10 Endangered Artifacts Campaign what I'm going to do is tell you a little bit about how we came up with the idea, what we hope to accomplish by it, how it's, how it's run, and a little bit of lessons learned as a result. If I can figure out the mechanics. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, starting with the Heritage Health Index Report. As we all know, because we're all involved with the Connecting to Collections, implement in, uh, C- Connecting to Collections uh, projects, uh, one of the major areas that Heritage Health Index report revealed was a significant um, unawareness on the part of the public of the importance of conservation and, in particular, the role that museums played in conservation and when we sat down to start to look at this for our statewide planning grant it occurred to us that there were really two audiences there was an internal audience and there was an external audience and we wanted to do something that would address both audiences the recommendation was to that there was a need to marshal support in the public and private sector for public awareness about collections care what we decided to do again was to focus on ways to train the museums in Virginia on uh, getting the message out about the the importance of conservation and also what a great job museums do and the fact that it is a public trust issue. These collections have been given to museums uh, to hold and to preserve for future generations. So the project we came up with in the statewide planning grant was called Conservation Cubed. Collections, conservation, and communications, and the, basically it involved uh, three things. We did a marketing assistance seminar. We did three of them around the state, uh, in which it was full-day seminars. We had a marketing firm called To Market that helped us do those presentations, and it was how to do marketing. The second thing was a marketing toolkit that they produced that was posted online so that people were not able to attend the seminars would at least have the basic tools to be able to enable them to do marketing and public awareness. And then the third component was a statewide marketing campaign that we had hoped to really drive home that public awareness component and get all of the uh, media outlets in the state to talk about how wonderful museums were for conserving these artifacts and how important conservation was and uh, all of that. Well, um, it flopped uh, abysmally. It was, uh, this was sort of the results that we got back after it was over and we got no one calling our hotline and no one asking for, uh, you know, I was all primed and ready to get up on TV and talk about conservation and uh, nobody really wanted to hear it. So we got together with some of the media outlets that were kind of good friends and we said, well, why, (laughs) why don't you like us? And they said basically that it's a boring topic, there's no hook, there's nothing sexy, it's nothing that the 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 public don't care. They understood that it was important, but they really didn't think it was, you know, anything that anybody cared about. And when it got right down to it, you know, would any of this really sell a newspaper? So we had to kind of drop back and reinvent the wheel. And for the implementation grant we sat down and looked at all the alternatives and looked at the lessons learned from the statewide planning grant and we decided to um, do something called Virginia's top 10 endangered artifacts it's a public awareness campaign and we felt that it was something sexy it was something known because of course National Historic uh, Trust has their top 10 endangered sites and in Virginia, as I'm sure there are in other states, Preservation Virginia does a wonderful job of their top 10 endangered sites, local Virginia sites, so the local in-state media were already aware of it. And we decided to add something new, a public voting component. With the advent of all of the different social media uh, ways to communicate with people, we felt like this would be the perfect way to try to get the public actually engaged. And if they were engaged, they might actually learn something. They might actually absorb the fact that conservation is important and that museums play the key role. And again, those were our key messages that we wanted to impart. So this is how the project was to work. Museums were to submit artifacts for consideration. There would be a public voting component online. At the time we wrote the grant, we weren't really sure how it was going to work, but um, we figured that out. A peer panel of conservators make the final top ten selection. We recruited several conservators in Virginia and asked them if they would sit and help us to make this determination. promised we would keep their names unknown so they wouldn't get any feedback. Museums are, no- were, are to be notified in early October of if they were head one, uh, one of the top ten designations or an honorable mention. And then VAM staff and again our marketing firm, Two Market would work with the top ten museums to help them maximize their public relations uh, push and coordinate the media campaign that we were planning to do. And this was actually a lesson that we learned in talking to Preservation Virginia and their top ten endangered sites. They said that when they first started doing it, they would announce the Virginia sites, and then there would be this lag time between the sites themselves started using it, and they discovered that it would be, uh, had more bang for the buck, so to speak, and more punch if the announcements were made together and if they did a little bit of training ahead of time. So we've incorporated that into our design. The publication, the public announcement of the winners will be November 1st. Uh, after we've had some time to work with the sites and develop a coordinated media campaign so that once we make our announcement the sites will pop in with all of their local and regional campaigns and hopefully that will just uh, solidify the impact and spread it around it was designed to be a book to preservation virginia's top ten sites which were announced in may so we are doing ours in october and november and that way we hope to make the whole conservation awareness aspect of it a year-round public awareness. This is a screenshot of the website that we developed for the public to come on and vote. Um, As you can see across the top it says home, how do I vote, background information, conservation videos, before and after, get involved in media. And we have a little uh, poll on the front that says according to the Heritage Health Index, Support to improve care of collections throughout the U.S. must come from check all that apply, and of course, all apply. It's foundations, businesses, individuals, and the public. the The key to this is that we have it um, keyed into both our Facebook, our Twitter. Uh, we have it on our. We talked about it on our blog. Um, it's, it's everywhere that that we have a presence online. Now these, as I said, are the various components that we did to our website, uh, and actually what we ended up doing was adding these as we went along, because we found that people started saying, well, what do you mean, what, is, what do you mean by conservation? So we put up the before and after photos, okay, here's a really corroded lantern, and here's what happens when you conserve it, ta-da! so we thought that those actually ended up really kind of helping to bring the, the the whole message home the conservation videos we blatantly stole from other online sources primarily Smithsonian and other people but it's also good information because if they're on the site and they're interested and they click on some of these conservation videos it's really good information for people um, the media was a list a site for the media to get involved and in. i think actually that might be my next Side, nope. Okay. And then the did you know poll and the social media connections. If you noticed on the website, we had the Facebook, the Twitter, the blog, everywhere for people to go for more information. We also had people submitting YouTube videos. We encouraged this in the application process. Um, we said, you know, you may want to do a YouTube video. And we didn't know how many people would and how savvy people would be. Uh, and we did end up getting quite a few videos that. Um, Ended up being very, very interesting, uh, and <laughs> to kind of support uh, support people's um, nominations, but between the conservation videos that we got from various sources and the promotional videos that my site, it helped to kind of sex up the whole project, if you will. And I need you to work your magic. We couldn't quite figure out how to show you the whole video with the audio, but I'm going to show you one of them. This is one that was submitted by Gary Melcher's uh, studios at Belmont, and it was, they basically got a group of skill, school kids to come over and talk about how important this wrought iron railing was, which was what they submitted for the uh, top ten endangered artifacts. And it was really cute, I wish you could hear the audio. And like this little girl's going, yeah, it's really pretty, I like to hold on to it. you know. <laughs> And and it's just, and some of them are very good, you know, they're going, and it's very important to conserve this because this was a historic building, and other people are just, oh, it's so pretty, and I like to walk up these stairs, but the whole thing was just, I thought, really cute, and it was a a plea for people to do the, uh, to vote for our site, so. This is what we had on our media site, which I think was um, really important, uh, and I'll explain why here in a minute. We provided a lot of tools for the media to be able to carry it because, again, the whole public awareness component was what was crucial for us, and we wanted this to get out, uh, the whole concept of conservation and the museum's role in conservation, to the broadest possible audience. So we provided on the website under the media tab, uh, we provided a media toolkit. Which included the program description, uh, a, a sample press release or a press release that they could use announcing the program, and then another press release that announced the public voting component. We also gave the media contacts, so if they had any questions or wanted an interview or a quote, that they could contact us. And then we had several um, of the uh, early press coverage. We Put up on the website so that people could look at it and other press could get an idea of how it's being covered. And then we had a list of the nominees, including contact information for each site, so that the media could go to that site and interview them about their particular object. And the reason why we did this is we felt that the local media would be more apt to pick up and run a story if there was uh, an object being nominated in their area. So, for example, the Roanoke folks in the Roanoke media, we sent them an email and said, hey, heads up, you might want to know that this is going on, and here are the folks that you can talk to who have nominated an object in your area. And then that way we were getting more of the local press coverage. Our strategy was to communicate with Virginia and DC media with four different press releases. First of all, the introduction of the program, and then the announcing that the public voting component had started then we had a reminder that the public voting was to end soon and actually I think that just went out because the public voting ends on Tuesday the final announcement of the top 10 finalists and that's the one that's yet to come we sent this out or actually to market the marketing firm we were working with sent it out to 350 media outlets in Virginia and DC both print and broadcast media and also to the online media and bloggers and we got quite a bit of reaction from that as well. And then we sent it to 650 national publications, the announcement of the program and online voting and also a press release on the focus on history and preservation. And these went, the the national publications we sent that to were publications that had a focus on history and uh, conservation. It's been a really good success, it's been a rousing success. We weren't really sure if anybody would nominate anything, and if anybody would vote. But as of uh, September 13th, when I did this PowerPoint, we had recorded over 25,000 votes on our website for individual artifacts. And just as an update, I found out this morning that it is currently at over 55,000 votes and it, it goes till tuesday so 100,000 <laughs> uh the media coverage we the press release announcing the public voting generated 30 stories and the voting in soon press uh was release was picked up by the associated press again this was just as i was doing up this so i want to say it it made the washington post and what two stories two stories And we, you know, every day we keep finding new stories, new things that are coming up. And so we've been very happy with the uh, the whole outreach part of it. Lessons learned, wrapping up here. Endangered is a dangerous word. We found in the very beginning that a lot of the museums said, oh, well, I'm not going to nominate anything. My board would think that I don't take care of my stuff if I put something on the endangered object list or the public would think that we don't take care of what's in our care. And that hadn't occurred to us. Um, What we did was we slightly tweaked the way we were talking about things and always introduced things from then on, once we started getting that reaction, with um, museums do an incredible job of conserving things. And the museums in your area are doing a fantastic job, but they need you to know what's involved in this public trust. The second thing we learned was some people were turned off by top ten. They said, oh, well, my stuff isn't that important. You know, I, I, it's not top ten. It's, you know, it's little, it's stuff. We said, no, 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 everything, everything. And we have a gamut of the 25 artifacts that we have nominated run the gamut from the USS Wisconsin, which is a destroyer, which we really haven't quite figured out if that's actually an artifact or a site. <laughs> but... You know, all the way to, you know, some archival uh, documents, Thomas Jefferson's papers when he was governor, you know, a bunch of, uh, an office door with a cartoon on it, just all sorts of things. The other thing we learned was that the museums with the most social media savvy have an advantage. The ones that are the highest, have the highest number of votes, are the ones who are Twittering it and blogging it and putting it on their Facebook and doing all sorts of things. And the fourth thing was technology is a frenemy. We've had more issues to do with the technology that we've used and trying to figure out the best way to do a public voting component that was easy and accessible than anything else. And that's where we've had our problems and what we'll be tweaking for next year. But basically, that's it.
2: afternoon. My fingers are chilly. (laughs) I want to tell you a little bit about Arizona. Just so you have a bit of background. Arizona is about to celebrate its 100th birthday in 2012. Uh, We're the baby state, the Valentine state. February 14th is our birthday. So everyone in Arizona is currently geared towards celebrating its 100th birthday. And as it turns out, those celebrations are perhaps a little bit more geared to celebrating and having parties than to things that may be of more substantial long-term worth. you think that might be an opportunity for us, and perhaps it still can be. As you can see, Arizona is a fairly large state. It's the sixth uh, largest state in land area, population a little under six million. It's a basin and range state which means there's many mountain ranges separated by lots of valleys and a bunch of deserts. Me, originally from Boston, I thought those deserts were going to be like the Gobi or the Sahara. But with one exception, over in the southwest near Yuma, it isn't, it's high desert, which is scrub. Sixty-eight percent of the state's land is owned by state, federal, or tribal governments. So that means that actually there's a relatively small amount of land that's available for commercial and residential purposes. There are major metropolitan centers, Phoenix the capital, Tucson about in the south, about 120 miles south of Phoenix, Flagstaff, Prescott, and Yuma. In between there's a lot of tiny little towns and uh, counties with very small uh, historical societies and museums. Traditionally the state's been very Republican, Barry Goldwater and John McCain are some of our better-known politicians. There's also been a very traditional Phoenix and Tucson rivalry. Tucson is a little more democratic and liberal, while Phoenix, the capital, is very conservative. That rivalry extends not only to um, sports venues, but to anything related to politics. Twenty percent of the state is Spanish-speaking, and about five percent of the population is Indian. The lessons we have learned through going through the survey and resulting planning process in our state, timing is everything. I'm going to go into these in a little bit more detail. You need to identify and bring in the representatives from those key players who can help you. You need to have some sort of structure to facilitate discussion. And you need, in our state in particular, to recognize that the participation of the key players may ebb and flow with changes in politics and the economy. And collaborations can be useful, but how do you make them work for you? Uh, we started actually with Utah. which in 2009, got its NEH planning grant. And we have a model of a survey based on theirs. Tom Clarison and Randy Silverman put it together for us. But it wasn't the first attempt in Arizona to try to organize some sort of collections preservation program. Those pro- um, efforts have gone back at least to 1982. And there was limited success in uh, loaner uh, kits of environmental monitoring equipment, salvage and recovery advice and assistance. But there was no sustainability. As the people who implemented those left the state for other uh, jobs, those programs would die out. The key uh, cities have uh, the major um, areas of preservation, staff people, and conservators. You can count the number of conservators in the state probably on one hand, and most of those are connected with state agencies. Uh, Again, coming from Boston, where there was a college or university on every street corner, going to Arizona was a surprise. There are three universities, one in Tucson, the U of A, one in Tempe in the the Phoenix metropolitan area, ASU, and one in Flagstaff, Northern Arizona University. Each of those, of course, has its own um, uh, library, museums, and preservation staffs. Following the heritage uh, uh, HHI, um, AHS AHS is the Arizona Historical Society. It's based in Tucson. It made an effort to interest key players, and we sought advice from Bilboa Arts Conservation Center in San Diego, of which our our state is a member. The one piece of advice that I got from them, which has served in good stead here, remains true, and that is you cannot reach everybody. Okay, so you have to be somewhat selective. The difficult question is how do you select? Aslapper, which is the Arizona State Library, Archives and Public Records Department, which is based in Phoenix, uh, was about to move into a brand new building at the time that AHS was trying to gather partners for um, an implementation, for a planning grant. They were unable to participate in planning and putting together a grant proposal for about a year while they were busy moving into a beautiful state-of-the-art building that is um, something we are very proud of in our state. So AHS, just a few months later, subsequently embarked on its own new building planning and it became so entrenched in that process it was not really available to spend time working on a grant proposal for a planning grant for this. So things waned for a couple of years. Then as Lapper, after they moved in and got themselves settled, invited some key players to support a not-yet-written IMLS planning grant in the fall of 2009, they had a grants writer. AHS had lost a grants writer, had lost its public information officer, had lost its conservation staff. So it was uh, really suffering from uh, state budget cuts. So those three universities, ASLAPR and the Arizona Historical Society, were invited to become the key players on a uh, committee, along with someone to represent county records managers. ASLAPR would provide the uh, key to the state libraries. They took the initiative, got the survey, and the steering committee didn't meet until May of 2010, at which point the um, uh, survey had already been prepared. We got a chance to comment on it, but it seemed to be a little bit more uh, oriented towards the library side of the page as opposed to museums. I was really the only person on the steering committee that represented museums. And uh, we noticed, or at least I noticed, that there were some missing key players. There weren't any conservators on the steering committee, no heads of preservation, no museums other than state government managed ones. There were no other stakeholders. There's an organization called the Friends of Arizona Archives. The Museum Association of Arizona was not on this group. The Balboa Arts Conservation Center was not represented. So it became clear that we were missing some key players who needed to be part of the uh, discussion. Timing is everything. In the summer of 2010, when the survey went live on SurveyMonkey, zonies go to San Diego. That's the cool place to go in the summer. When it hits 110 in June you don't want to stay around. Okay? So that was when the survey went live around July 5th. So here we were <laughs> missing a lot of our constituents and trying to get them to do a survey. So it was difficult to get them to contribute. Uh, we had to do a lot of cold calling in order to get some tribal government representation, living uh, collections representation and so on. We brought in the Museum Association and an objects conservator to help uh, make those connections. As it turned out, Arizona-Utah and had almost identical results. Um, Arizona had 154 responses, about a 30% return rate. I'm not going to go through a lot of this because a lot of this is pretty similar to what you've seen already. Probably the uh, only thing that's really of any interest here is that uh, actually Arizona had a higher percentage of uh, applying for grants, oddly enough, didn't necessarily mean they acquired them but they were given them they also were be a lot of untapped grant resources what we did to um, try to create um, some more communication we realized that we needed more communication among those stakeholders we needed to talk to our constituents and ourselves and our friends what we did not have was an something that's an assumption that's been underlying all of this program for the last few years. Museums and libraries don't always play together. In Arizona they didn't have a real good track record of playing together. So here we were with these major players trying to learn how to deal with each other. And of course you know that museums and libraries come at things a little bit differently from points of view. whip through all that. Okay, After the survey was completed, we held five Arizona town hall meetings in September of 2010. And town hall meeting is a nice, neutral term, has no real uh, political connotation towards any one left or right, so it worked out very nicely. And we got a representative of museums and libraries to come to these, and we listened to their concerns. And one of the things that came up over and over is that these small institutions, they have literally nothing to start with in terms of the same lack of preservation, no staffing, uh, no funds to go to um, training. But they loved the idea of a circuit rider. That became the the clear, clear thing. We want a circuit rider. We want someone to come out to us and help teach us. And so we kind of latched onto that as a potential way in which we might, in the future, be able to serve our communities. One other thing that happened at these town hall meetings, Randy Silverman was there, and he had been teaching uh, graduate students in library and information management and uh, archives classes, and he was able to match up some of his grad students with some of these very small historical societies who were looking to get a grant. And he recommended that they try for an NEHPAG grant. And I'm happy to say that out of those little matchups, we've had three small historical societies receive uh, NEHPAG grants in the last cycle. And one of those was actually for a conservator site visit. The comments we got from the town hall, gotta to get this feedback, as Tom Clarison mentioned earlier. Obviously, very are small museum, limited resources. They're struggling to address the conservation in a fiscally weak environment. No formal training. Um, reduced staffing, one of the biggest obstacles to proper conservation, preservation, planning and implementation. Regional workshops are very helpful. I, I, I'd hear general lack of conservators in this state, so obviously we have to overcome these things. There was a lot of interest in doing some collaborative grant projects, and so the steering committee took this information back in October last year and said, can we put together an implementation grant for this cycle that comes up so quickly? We spent a lot of time discussing, read that, arguing, over the way in which we might um, do an implementation project. <laughs> we finally um, put together a proposal jointly with the state of Utah, which actually had very similar results in HITS uh, program and has similar uh, geographical and topographical issues with us. The, unfortunately, that proposal was not funded. And in the meantime, the director of the Arizona State Library Archives and Public Records Department from whence the Grand Rider came, she retired and left the state. In her wake, uh, her position was not replaced. And so as a result, um, there are now three people taking her place. So we're not sure uh, what the transition will mean for our organization. But when we go back, we need to work on um, (laughs) our most significant problems. And perhaps for us, (laughs) That's coming up with a structure for our steering committee to speak to each other, with each other, on a more level playing field than we have in the past. We'll go from there. Um, We'll uh, uh, do some more planning. And with all that we have learned this week, I think we can come back in a year from now with lots more ideas and suggestions and lots more success to share with you. Thank you.
3: Apologize first of all that I haven't been here all week but um, the Florida Association of Museums annual conference oh I can't even think about it starts in like two days so (laughs) needless to say I've had lots of sleepless nights and I flew in this morning and I fly out tomorrow morning so I just wanted to apologize I understand that some of our steering committee members have been here and they said it has been an amazing um, week and that they've learned so much which I love because that means they'll even do a better job when, they, when we get to work on our second grant. Um, I'm going to talk to you about why it is important in, and why we chose in both of our our grants to include advocacy. Um, Florida takes advocacy very seriously. For many years we enjoyed wonderful grant funding and we became complacent and we would go out and work for it each year And then when the economy tanked, our funding tanked. And what it taught us was that we were on a mission constantly to educate. And that's all advocacy really is, is educating. And it's doing it every day, all day. And it's not just elected officials, it's public officials. It's your friends, it's your family. I can't tell you the times that I'll say something about an issue that's going on with museums and they'll say, well, now, why, why does that, why, why would government do that? And I'm like, okay, now, you're my mother. Do I have to explain that to you? <laughs> so um, what we did with both of our grants was we included a component that involved um, our elected officials and not just our state legislators and our Congress, but we went all the way to county and city commissioners and to school board because we all – um, know how important it is that we have an educational component and that we serve our children, and I know that it's no different in your state than it is in mine. But we have to key in on all those economic engines and education and community representation and those lovely key words, so that we teach people why we are important. Um, I, I, I mean, I feel like I'm a preacher most days because I preach this all the time to remind my people, you've just got to do it. You just don't have a choice, you got to do it. So what we did was we involved, first of all, when we started our, the initial grant, we talked about what we wanted to do, what we wanted to accomplish with it. And, and some of the comments about libraries and um, you know, how we all do things differently uh, was something that we wanted to tackle and we felt like that if we involved everybody then we would have a much better product in the end. So we created a very diverse steering committee and I'm talking diverse. Um, We included the Florida Library Association, the Society of Florida Archivists, Florida Art Museum Directors Association, Florida Trust for Historic Preservation, Florida Department of State, and the Florida Public Archeology span Network. Now if you don't think that's diverse, trust me, get them in the room together and try to get a survey created that covers all those different areas that we are all so proud of Um, and then once we got our steering committee together we met and we talked about what we could do to take this really important study to our members but then at the same time tie in the public and tie in our elected and our public officials so we created regional forums and within those regional forums, we invited not only our members from all of our respective organizations, but we also invited all of the local officials from that area, or from the regional area. So we did one into Berry Hall, and that's over by Daytona Beach, and we invited Orlando, that whole area to come. And we, we really tried to to focus on areas that were either we had a good friend in and we knew it or a key leadership area so that it was somebody we needed to touch. We included a half-day workshop, and it, it didn't have to be on collections or conservation. It could be on advocacy. It could be on social media. They all tie in so closely together. And then we do a half-day roundtable forum so that anybody that came would, want to, would feel comfortable in talking whether you were a volunteer, whether you were a staff person, whether you were somebody from the public that just cared, you were in a setting where you could say something. And then, because Florida knows how to party, we would have a reception at the end, because if you have a party, they will come, because they will come and eat and drink, and they like pictures. So we would invite the legislators to our parties and they were not just they weren't just eating and drinking they really weren't they were very important we showed the DVD that was created Um, we asked different legislators to get up and say about talk about things in their area that were so very important to them that was the reason why they knew that what we were doing was important and we took their pictures and we publicized it and then when legislative session started we reached out to those people and made sure that they stayed aware of our issues as we move forward but we taught a lot of people and reminded a lot of people about things that they probably just take for granted they you know they just think that museums are just going to be there forever they think that your artifacts or your your collections are going to just sit there but you know they've got to have care we've got to take care of them and we've got to fund our organizations so that they can continue to do that Um, we did you know we had some successes and some failures also when you live in Florida you always have those nice little things called hurricanes and if they don't become a hurricane they might be a tropical storm so we did one of our sessions during legislative session so that we could key in on our museum and advocacy day that we do in jointly with historic preservation we did one in South Florida in conjunction with the FAM annual conference and we did one in Central Florida which was a place we knew we had some key officials that we needed to educate. Um, The legislative session forum was done, like I said, in in conjunction with Museum and Preservation Day, which is something we do annually. But we did training with it, and we did our reception. The one, this is the one that was at DeBerry Hall, and these people in the back are all legislators. And if they're not legislators, they're the legislative aide and each one of them we gave them the opportunity to get up and talk so that they could talk about why they were there and what was important to them there's also a county commissioner there um, and one of those other people is my board president I think it was board president then that was another thing that we did was we greatly involved our leadership in our organization um they all worked pretty well except for the one in South Florida because we had a tropical storm which was it, we kept on and we had 60 people in our forum and our roundtables but unfortunately our legislators and our public officials were busy getting ready for a storm because it was actually heading to Miami which is where we were um, we we kept doing it though and we haven't given up we are constantly educating we have term limits um, used to you could be in the house or the senate or wherever for twenty and thirty years the voters decided to um, change the law and now you get you only have conserve so many terms and so you are getting a new crop of new people every two and four years so it is a constant grind in reminding them and what's really amazing is I know I remember attending advocacy day in. D.C. and them explaining to us that the staff were going to be like children. Well, our legislators are now children. And we'll, they'll be like 26 years old and they're running for office. And they're our legislators. So we've learned that they may not be the ones that are probably attending some of those institutions. So we need to like clue them in so that when they have kids, maybe they will attend them. Um, we, we now have an implementation grant and we have done pretty much the same thing with um, including our elected officials and our public officials uh, we will have a um, a graduation what we call a graduation ceremony when you get done with our process and that will be open to the public and we will invite um, local dignitaries to that which will keep them involved um, we we know that that's important we know that they have to when they arrive In our capitals Tallahassee when they arrive in Tallahassee we laugh because we have something called the truck route capital circles circles the city I swear when the plane lands and they get inside that street they forget everything that they knew they forget that there's a fabulous institution right down the street that they were just there for an opening they forget that they went to the library and checked out a book they forget that they went to an archaeological dig and saw something amazing they they are well they they just they're so focused on 87,000 different things that they tend to forget about us because we're sometimes considered fluff you know we've got to fund these essential services you have got to have fire you got to have police you got to have health care and so and, and as a lobbyist i go up there and i'm like How do I stand up there and tell them, but we got to have museums and we got to have funding, too, when they're talking about my kid's education. So you have to figure out a way to balance it, and this is the way we do it. We teach them all year long, and we do it not when we need them. We do it when we don't need them, so that when we do need them, they know who we are. I put in here, and I'm certainly not going to go through all this. I know you all were probably scared when you saw that I had 22 slides. I I put in here a lot of information about advocacy so that when you go back and you're talking with your staff or you're talking with your association or your historical society or whoever it is that you have some some notes and some topics of of what, what it takes to be an advocate. We're all advocates. We're advocates every day. It doesn't necessarily have to be political. But we, every one of you sitting in this room right now are advocating on something. You, you're here because you care. And you're here because you believe in something. And what we have to do is take it the next step and make sure that we're constantly educating and keeping our people aware of how important we are and what we do. And we just, it, it's, it's our right to vote, and it, are, it is our responsibility to do this. And if you flip through these, you'll see all kinds of ways to talk to your legislators or to your county commissioners. And remember, those county commissioners, those city commissioners, they're going to be your legislators one day, and then they're going to be in Congress. If you train them when they're down at the lower positions, they might remember it when they get to D.C. Now, they probably won't, because it's probably the same way. There's probably a road that goes around the Capitol, and when they drive over it, they forget. Um, but seriously, you can. People are. I, I ask people all the time, why? Why are you so intimidated? What? What are you? Why are you scared? They're people. You elected them. You have every right to go see them. You can be. You can be professional and you can be courteous and you can be friendly. But you have a right to go see them, even if it's for 30 seconds to get your FaceTime, because you're their constituent and that is what they are there for. They are there to represent you. So I tell people, you know, go with a group. We go we go in groups. We we never if somebody is nervous about it, we go two or three of us. We don't go like 50 so that we totally they they're like blocking the door. But we go with a couple of people that have done it before so that they know what to say and once you do it a couple of times, you've learned. You invite people to your to your events. We're at FAMS conference next week. Um, our programs are all underneath the Department of State. He is uh, an appointed official. We invited Secretary Browning to come and spend some time with us. Sometimes he can, sometimes he can't, but when he does and he'll be there Tuesday night, that gives us a little bit of face time with him to remind him how important our programs are. He works for the governor. That means he's got the governor's ear, so it's just a great way to to re familiarize him with how important we are one of the things that I didn't mention was every forum we did and the ones that we're doing this year the training will be done on property of either a museum an historical society a library we're going to try to do to reach out to all of our partners and we included those same partners this year so we we bring them to places that to us, is very important for them to see. We, we bring them to a place that's that's gone through conservation or historic preservation and they can see what it used to look like and what it looks like now. Um, we bring them to a library so they remember what goes on in a library. Um, we, we really try to, to, to think about what it is that's going to have an impact on them. And most of the time, it's doing that type of thing and they may never walk in your institution if you don't do... You know, a, a planned gathering and get them there. But then they may come back and they may become, you know, a member or they may already be a member and they've forgotten what they've got in their community. There's all types of information in here about um, talking to your elected officials, how to educate them, um, what to ask for when you see them, uh, you know remembering them, recognize them if they do something, if they visit you, if they come to an event, take their picture. They love, they love to have their picture in newsletters or on websites or they like the publicity. Um, make sure that you are careful. You know, you, I, I sit on a fence. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. They never know which one I really am because I'm friendly with everybody. doesn't matter what you are. And so you have to be careful what you say. You don't want to, oh, I don't want to talk to that person. You talk to everybody because they all need to be educated. I think that's pretty much it. Um, I hope I didn't bore you.
0: I think we have just a few minutes for, for questions. over on the side here. last call <laughs> for questions anyway. Okay, go ahead. That's a great point. Oh, I did everyone hear him or would you like me to summarize? Oh, for the recording, yes. So our colleague from Oregon has noted that he has reached out um, not only to legislators but to other allied partners such as public television, people in the film industry or Working on documentaries that use rely on primary resource material and the like. Melinda forgot something. I'm sorry, it
3: is no important and, it, and it's the key to what you're talking about.
0: We, um,
3: the museum association, I serve on what's called Visit Florida, which is our um, state tourism component. That it used to be a, a state-run organization and it's now a public-private partnership. And they're set up with partners, so I'm a partner of theirs, and I serve on their board. Um, For years, we've talked about how we are tourism. You know, tourism is the number one industry in Florida. But as museums, we were the worst about selling that, about really taking an active role. So last year, we joined Tourism Day, which is um, the Florida Restaurant and Lodging Association, the... um, RV parks and campgrounds, the um, Florida Sports Foundation, ourselves, the museums. We included the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation. And we had one big day together instead of like 10 separate days. And we, we did a street party for the public in the middle of session. We closed the street down. We had all these different groups. And you're talking, I mean, we're talking restaurant and lodging people attractions people museum people i mean it was very different but we had a packed house of 250 people at lunch the governor actually came and talked and then we had a party in the evening when everybody closed down and it was exactly that we got the television involved we reached out to the chamber of commerce we reached out to our um facvvs which is the florida association of convention and visitors bureaus those are all our partners because we're all in it about tourism and about visitors and it was it made a tremendous difference and it has now become an annual thing so we'll be doing that from now on so you're you're right public broadcasting radio television all those partners that we take for granted we have to reach out to sorry you just you
0: sparked my tired brain <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> thanks well um, you will have a chance to talk yourselves for being such patient listeners through our whole s- series of sessions, but tomorrow morning is an, uh, a breakfast, it's early, but um, we will feed you, we will have coffee, and uh, you'll have opportunities to, um, to talk among yourselves and to talk with the planners of, um, of this because we will be meeting again next year at ASLH and um, in Salt Lake City, and we look forward to, to sharing more best practices and ideas. So, with that, I'm going to turn the podium over to Connie Bodner, who is the program officer at the Institute of Museum and Library Services in charge of conservation programs, including conservation project support and heading up the uh, Connecting to Collections um, grant programs, including the implementation grants, which you may be interested in. Thanks, Connie.
4: Thanks, Kristen. Uh, I just wanted to share some information with you all because I understand that there is interest in uh, our implementation grants. I hope that's the case anyway. I've talked with several of you already. Um, the guidelines aren't posted yet, but they will be between November 1st and December 1st. The, gu- the deadline has been moved forward to February 1st this year, and our intent there was to give you a little more time to plan and to digest uh, your planning grant results so you can put together a solid proposal. Um, Just real briefly, this is up to $250,000. It's no match required. There aren't very many uh, opportunities these days to get that much money with no match required. It can be up to two years for the project um, duration. There's a limited number. I wish I could tell you how many we thought we could award. I wish I knew what the IMLS budget was going to be. Let's see, we already talked about no match. Applicants can be museums, libraries, or uh, institutions of higher education, Okay, and that's unusual for a, a museum, uh, uh, for us on the museum side. Um, we encourage partnerships with archives, statewide service organizations, and state agencies. Um, let's see. And uh, there are just, I noted about seven things here that I think are going to show up in the guidelines when we get those posted. So in no particular order, these are things that I would encourage you to keep in mind. Um, One is to be sure you focus on implementing and not more planning. Time for planning is over in terms of this grant program, so you need to focus on implementing and how you're going to resolve the issues that have surfaced as the result of your planning work. Second, address the most pressing needs of your collections holding institutions. This needs to tie into Heritage Health Index, but you do not need to to address all four of those priorities. If you've got one or two or three or all four, make the case for how you're going to address those. But um, it needs to be customized to your state and it needs to reflect the good work that you've done in in your planning effort. Defend your choice in your narrative. Uh, And again, the data for that should come from your planning grants, but pick what works for you. Be sure there's a balance among museums, libraries, and archives, and some of the proposals that were reviewed last year, they were lopsided, and reviewers wanted to know why. If yours turns out to be lopsided, explain why that is. If you have uh, uh, many more of one kind of institution than another, then tell them that. Um, if there is a stronger need of one kind of institution over another, then explain that. But otherwise, this this program was invented to be able to address all collecting institutions, and so reviewers typically want to see that represented. Use technology judiciously and effectively, and be aware of what's already out there and the experiences of others. That's why it was so great to hear Margot talk about their use of social media here. Um, be a good researcher, find out what's been done and figure out what might work for your state. And I would recommend don't ask for grant money to do something that's already been done, if you, can, if you can borrow it or adapt it from another source for free. And don't invent the wheel again if you don't have to. Be sure to explain what's unique about your state. It might be geography, it might be climate, it might be um, a small number of counties Thank you, Delaware, or it might be (laughs) an enormous number of counties, Um, (laughs) that's right. Um, Reviewers need to know that and need to have that outlined for them so they can make a good decision. Um, If you're training, and and I think we've seen in an awful lot of the planning grants, training uh, practitioners is a huge need and a huge demand. At this point, you're probably ready to suggest a curriculum. Use that as a supporting document. Put as much detail in there as as you think you can manage because uh, reviewers will like to see that. And last but by no means least, uh, you know that this is a collaborative uh, effort and we're encouraging collaboration. Show how that collaboration will work in a real day-to-day uh, sense in some of the proposals that that have come through we we don't understand the reviewers don't understand who's going to do what and when and how that's all going to fit together so be sure to address that uh, from administration to data gathering to training to website development make sure they know they understand how you're going to put this together so that's what I've got so far do you all have any questions uh, as you sit down to think about your your programs and proposals. Yes? One of the things that, that, um, to that in sort of sustainability. Yes. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for mentioning that. Yeah. That's huge. We want to make sure that this uh, increased capacity has a lifespan beyond, uh beyond the grant period. So uh, that's a, a very, very significant thing. Thanks for bringing that up. Anybody else? Okay, thank you, good luck, and we will do a webinar um, probably in early January, um, so we'll post, that will be part of the guidelines that are posted, and don't hesitate to call me if you need anything or you want to uh, bounce ideas around. Okay, thanks. I
0: just want to make one quick announcement. By my count, I think we talked about 17 state projects last couple of days, if your state was not one of them, and you have an idea for a topic for next year, make sure you put it on the evaluation, which is online. Um, Otherwise, we'll see you bright and early.
1: For anyone who's interested, excuse me, there are a few of us going for an afternoon toddy in the bar, so we'd welcome you to join us. And if you have any questions about our presentation, we'd be more than happy to go on and on and on and on. <laughs> funded by (laughs) <laughs> my,
4: I don't know what mine is.
3: I'm um, so just my southern hospital.
1: <laughs>
2: Yes, I do. It's in my bag, I think. Okay. Um, That seems reasonable. I I mean, I, I have no problem. I I have a problem with that. recommendation. They were hoping for seven, I thought, so, yeah. and it, he just said NHPRC was recommend- That's all so or something, include your closet. Archivists love your closet. Oh, no, you're reclaiming the last time of we need to worry about any of these materials. I mean, we're having breakfasts think, think we're having breakfast here. Yeah, this question is going um,
0: to
4: be differently.
2: If
0: you could just
3: leave it,
0: no, just, I just don't like it. Yeah, yeah, just say,
2: so please leave it. leave it. They've been very good so about leaving it, so. so Now I've noticed that a couple other people have dropped off their flyers and things that are totally not related, but that's okay.